my cousin was really into practical jokes, but his most recent one seemed more sinister. When I was growing up, my favorite person in the whole world was my older cousin, Spencer. He's exactly the kind of guy you like to hang out with when you're little. Even though I was a good 10 years younger than him, he never treated me like a kid. He talked to me like a regular person and listened, actually listened when I told him something. He would always make time to play with me when the family got together and he gave me all of his hand-me-down toys. Plus, he was funny and he had a big red beard. Actually, I think what I remember the most about Spencer was his sense of humor. He'd make the most ridiculous off-the-wall statements and deliver them deadpan. Sometimes I'd almost think he was serious, until this stoic facade cracked with a smile and he started howling with laughter. My first thought was how much I'd miss these jokes when I got the call about his accident. I was about 20 years old by then, and I hadn't really talked to Spencer in a few years, but I still looked up to him and remembered him fondly. It was a terrible tragedy that he'd had an asthma attack alone in the woods. He was helpless without his inhaler by the time someone found him. Well, they were a few hours too late. My aunt and uncle were devastated. As such, my parents called me down from school for the weekend, and our whole family helped with the funeral and other arrangements. It was a terribly depressing affair, but the worst part was that we had to drive out to Spencer's house with him to help them pack his things. Since looking at me was upsetting my aunt and uncle, which is fair, I mean, they had just lost their own child, I was relegated to the shed out back, which I was to work on cleaning out until my mom and dad were ready to go. Now, Spencer was a real outdoorsy type of guy. He worked a construction job and spent almost all of his time either building things or fixing them. As such, he spent a lot of time out in that shed. I had expected it to be neat, if well-worn. I was a little surprised when I opened it and found everything in disarray. There were tools and materials strewn all over the floor, including a very rusty-looking chainsaw perched precariously on a few cinder blocks, while his work table was a mess of fast food wrappers, crumpled up papers, and dirty rags. Most of the place was taken up by a half-finished car he'd been working on, and the floor was smeared a mess of oil and dirt. A rank smell alerted me to the fact that he'd also used the shed to clean and skin his game during hunting season. Spencer was an excellent marksman. I decided to start with the work table, clearing away the garbage so I could see if there was anything worth keeping. As I lifted away an old pizza box, my eyes fell on a ragged composition notebook that was simply labeled Diary. I was intrigued, as I'd never picture Spencer as the kind of guy to own a diary. After I threw the pizza box into the garbage bag, I grabbed the notebook and sat on Spencer's workbench. I knew it was wrong, looking through his personal things, but his death had hit me surprisingly hard. I thought that if I read it, maybe for a moment it would feel like he was still alive like I could still talk to him. I opened the notebook and read his first entry. Diary of a Toothbrush I spend my days under blinding lights listening to the rush of water, aware that it is both a warning and a taunt. I dread the moment they reach for me, holding my head under the frigid water, waiting for me to drown. Only once I am completely drenched do they bring me to their stinking maws, rubbing me against their filth. They like it. I think they secretly get off on it. Then they put me back in my cell and leave me to shudder and wait for the morning. Unfortunately, 
There will always be tomorrow. I blinked and reread the passage, not sure I had understood what I was reading. Then I closed my eyes and pictured Spencer narrating it to me, his deadpan voice giving away no hints. I pictured his smile at the end and started to crack up. Spencer. Fucking Spencer. I swear the guy had the weirdest sense of humor, but he never failed to make me laugh. A notebook full of the mundane experiences of inanimate objects? I was looking forward to reading the rest of them. I turned the page and found the second entry. Diary of a Sock. I spent the night rigid with anticipation. They leave me alone for those quiet, dark hours, but I know they'll be back. They want me. No, they need me. They can't get rid of me, no matter how hard they try. And then, it happens. First, they stretch me out. Oh, God. Then, they nudge their toes into my insides. I'd pant if I had lungs. Finally, they force their rigid flesh as deep as they can go. I quiver with barely contained arousal. They spend the whole day walking on me, in me, rubbing against me like the filthy little sluts they are. They make me come until I can't anymore. Then the next day, they do it again. They're sick fucking bastards, and I can't get enough of it. I was howling with laughter, tears springing out of my eyes. Oh yes, we were definitely keeping this notebook. In a few months, well, maybe a few years, his parents would probably get a kick out of it. Oh man, his mom would be horrified, though. I moved on to the third entry. Diary of a Gun. It's cold out, the fall wind kissing my metal with practiced ease. The air is ripe with dead leaves. I wonder, should death smell so sweet? He yanks me at a buck, majestic and tall, its antlers imposing and regal. It belongs in a painting, but will end up in a shed, its skin tattered to ribbons and its insides consumed with dispassion. I fire. It drops. One eye is destroyed. The other is glassy. It's hard being a pacifist when you're a gun. My giggles started to fizzle out, and I stared at the entry, puzzled. That one didn't feel like a joke. It seemed almost introspective, philosophical. Maybe there was more than this than I originally thought. Filing that conjecture away, I flipped to the fourth entry. Diary of a Chainsaw When Master comes for me, he does not come alone. He drags her behind him by her blonde hair, while blonde with a few blotches of red. She screams, but he does not hear her, or perhaps he does not care. Master is impervious. He chose me, and I am grateful. The sound of my engine rips through the night, drowning out her terrified cries. After a few moments' work, her cries turn painful and she screams in agony. I like the sound. It fuels Master. By the time Master is finished, I am drenched in red. He likes how I look, covered in humanity. He lets it dry on me as I sit in the cinder blocks watching his work. He wiggles under the car, pulling open the secret door. Only he and I know that it exists. I hear him shove her body into the hole. I hear a thud as he hits the bottom of the basement. When he emerges from beneath the car, he smiles at me. I want to purr in return. The master is pleased, and that pleases me. I'd stopped laughing by then, my face twisted in disgust. 
The tone of the passage was worshipful, sexual, even. It echoed somewhere inside me and made me feel sick, as though I had been infected by the words. There was something nasty in them, something viral. On impulse, I threw the notebook in the trash and began to drag it out of the shed. That journal was a joke gone wrong, and I felt that nobody really needed to see it. Spencer would probably prefer it if I threw it out anyway. As I headed for the exit, I kept my eyes pointedly averted from the chainsaw in the corner of the shed. As I reached out and opened the door, I took one last breath in the shed and frowned before practically running out and leaving it forever. Man, it smelled really bad in there. A Night Without Stars The following is a transcription of a large audio file I found within a voice recorder app on a used cell phone. I bought this phone at a pawn shop three months ago, and after multiple listens, I still don't know what to make of it. The recording is all done in the voice of the same woman, but her tone and the style of language she uses seems to shift depending on what she's talking about. Whether this is a side effect of medication, her circumstances, or just being dramatic while playing on her phone, I can't say for sure. So I typed this up as I found it. If you have thoughts, or even better, know who this woman might be and how she's doing, please let me know. I drifted along a wide black river, the air around me so still and quiet that just the sound of my panicked breaths seemed to break the world a little bit. The boat I was on was barely a boat at all, a flat, featureless plane that traveled for 12 or so feet in every direction before falling off into the dark water that seemed to eat the fading sunlight and absorb every rippling reflection. On the far banks, I saw trees and rolling distances of land that looked cold and alien. I wanted to stop my journey somehow, to get off this floating coffin and away from the currents that kept pulling me toward or away from something unknown. But there were shadows in between the trees, shapes milling about on those faraway hills that made my bowels loose and my eyes water. I knew enough to know I was in a kind of hell, but I still feared there was worse hells on offer if I only dared to ask. And then I woke up. Blinking, I looked around the hospital room. I knew this place. I was in the long-term care unit at Groveland Medical Center. They probably thought I was in a coma. I had to think. Get my head straight. She wasn't here yet, but I had only had a few moments, and if I didn't finish before she came back, I may never get another chance. My name is Marisol Jennings. I am 29 years old. When I was 18, I moved to Oregon to go to college. My parents decided to adopt another child. That child was Ariel. She was seven when they became her foster parents and was eight when they formally adopted her. She was 13 when she murdered my father. I know this all sounds insane. If you check into it, you'll probably find that my father died five years ago of a heart failure in his sleep. That's what the doctor said at the time, after all. And at the time... I bought that. I knew that Ariel was strange. She was always polite, but ever since she was little, she'd had this 
quiet, almost sneaky way about her. I would sometimes catch the way she looked at my parents or me when she didn't know I was looking, and it reminded me of an old tomcat we used to have. The way he looked right before he jumped on a mouse or a bird. It was a mean, hungry look, and it always made me shiver. Still, back then, all I knew was that my daddy was dead. My mom took it hard. She started getting more religious, which I was all for, but then I started noticing that her newfound faith was taking an odd turn. She got secretive and more standoffish as she isolated herself from me and her old friends. It was just her and Ariel and their new activities. At first, it was just church and study groups. That became tent revivals, which became going to faith healers, and by the time Ariel was 15, that had turned into taking the girl out of high school and the two of them taking off to follow their circuits of, well, I don't know exactly what they are, really. What I do know, what I found out right before, before this happened to me, is that they weren't going to these gatherings just to watch or listen. Mom was carrying Ariel to perform a service. Because Ariel, it turned out, possessed a very special gift. She could take people into her dreams. The gatherings, which from what little I know sound closer to some kind of cult, called her the Dream Girl. And supposedly, when she touched you and concentrated for a few moments, you would fall into a deep, deep sleep. But it wasn't normal sleep. Instead, you were dreaming the most vivid, most real dream you ever had. It didn't even feel like dreaming at all, according to Mom. It felt like living another life, a life that she gave you. People would pay good money for the experience. Supposedly, it could help them get over guilt or feel better about themselves, expand their minds, rid themselves of fears, get closer to... something. I don't know. Maybe it did help some people. All I know for sure is that what it did to my parents and what it's doing to me. The last time I saw Mom, she was sitting at a bus stop outside of Kansas City. Ariel had gone on ahead to get them a room, and I'd heard my mom say she just needed to sit and rest a minute. I'd finally tracked them down after nearly three weeks of searching. they dropped off the radar the month before, and it had reached the point that Ariel's school had contacted me after she was absent for two weeks straight with no word or response. I had spent the past few weeks ground between twin wheels of fear and anger. I knew something was wrong, and I was starting to have an idea that Ariel was part of the problem, but I didn't know what was really going on. Had Mom gone insane? Were they involved in some kind of dangerous group that had abducted them? I'd never had a strong connection to Ariel, but I still felt responsible for her well-being, and I certainly didn't want either one of them getting hurt or ruining their lives. And I had prepared a speech for both of them about how they needed to get their shit together and come home. But when I saw Mom sitting on that bus bench, all those words fell away. I hadn't seen her for six months, and it looked like she'd aged 20 years. Worse than that, she looked sick and frail in a way I'd never seen before. I almost ran to them right away, but something, some deep part of me that remembered that mean, hungry look kept me back until Ariel had gone and left Mom alone. My mother looked up at me as I got close, and for half a second she looked surprised and happy. But then the look was gone, replaced with fear. 
She told me I needed to go. I needed to get away and leave them alone. My angry accusations and reprimands started coming back to me. I told her she was crazy, that I wasn't going anywhere except home with them. She told me about how Ariel had a gift, that they were helping people and I needed to leave them alone. I listened for a minute and then cut her off, telling her that she was full of shit and she needed to go get some help. If not for her, then for her girls. That's when my mom reached down and touched my hand. Her skin was thin and dry as crepe paper and I could barely feel the weight of her urgent squeeze. She said no. That I didn't understand. Ariel wasn't a little girl, not really. That she had known for a long time, that something wasn't right with her, but Ariel had ways of making you do things, see things, that she wasn't able to stop her, that when my father had tried, she made him go away for good. She was trying to say more when she broke off into a scream, her eyes lifting past me to something beyond. Before I could react, I felt a cool hand on my neck and then I was gone. Gone to a wide black river, traveling through a night without stars. I've woken up several times since then. I've been admitted to a hospital I don't know where as a coma patient. I don't know if what Ariel can do just wears off over time or if she wants me to wake up occasionally so I remember what's going on, so, so it hurts more. Either way, I come to every few days. I try to move, but something's wrong with my body. I can't move my legs, and it's only recently that I got to where I can move my arms and hands a little. I'd buzz for a nurse, but the call button is on a hook near the wall. I call out, but no one ever comes. I don't know what kind of place this is, but I only ever get one visitor. She always comes in smiling, her eyes sharp and her lips wet, as she crosses the room and kisses me on the forehead. I feel myself starting to fade back into the deep as soon as she brushes my skin and by the time she is stroking my head, I'm already tasting the stale air of that other place on my tongue. I try to fight her, to beg for her to let me go, but there's no point. She has no mercy in her, or at least none for me. I don't know what is going on or how she can do what she does. I also don't know if this phone I'm recording on is all part of some trick of hers. A game to give me false hope. I found it two times ago when I woke up, just laying next to me on the bed. Did she leave it there, or did it fall out of a nurse's pocket? I'm not in the position to waste time questioning such things. I hid it under me as my sister came into the room. The next time I woke up, I tried calling, but the service had been turned off. This time, I decided to try the recording app instead. If you find this, please believe me. Please try to help me and my mom if she's still alive. But if you come, please be careful. Avoid the young girl that comes to visit me every week. I don't know what she is, but she's very dangerous. And whatever you do, don't let her... Don't open the door for late-night trick-or-treaters. We all have that one friend who's not into the holidays. You know the one. Won't decorate, won't dress up, won't wish you a happy whatever day it is, and though he'll reluctantly agree to come to your themed party, he'll stay in the back and scowl the whole time. In most cases, the hate is directed at just one holiday, 
whether it be Valentine's, Christmas, Easter, or hell, even Arbor Day. My friend Patrick, he hated Halloween with every fiber of his being. Now, Patrick hadn't always been that way. I'd known him since grade school, and we'd usually spend Halloween together. I noticed a sudden shift in his attitude around the time we got too old to go trick-or-treating, but too young to go out drinking. At first, I figured he was just being a normal, angsty teen. Maybe he thought Halloween was just for babies. Maybe he was pissed off about not being allowed to go trick-or-treating anymore. Or maybe it was just a phase. Damned if I knew. It wasn't until last year that I found out the real reason. It was a few days before Halloween, and I'd managed to drag Patrick to a costume party. Naturally, he'd shown up in a usual t-shirt and jeans and told the doorman he was dressed as a broke college student. He was in that state of semi-drunkenness where he'd started slurring his words, but was still mostly coherent. Some chick wearing devil horns, and almost nothing else, ran into him, and I saw him flinch when he looked at her. He mumbled about how much he hated Halloween, and I finally got around to asking him why. That's when his face drained of color as though he hadn't had years to prepare this answer. He emptied his cup and shuffled nervously from foot to foot. His story started with a promising, you're not going to believe this, but... When Patrick was 14, his parents left him alone on Halloween night. Nothing unusual there. He was more than old enough to take care of himself. They left him with a bag of candy and put him in charge of handing it out to the neighborhood kids but were adamant that he stopped by 10 p.m., locked the doors, and turn off the porch lights. 10 p.m., they insisted, and not a minute later. There were enough kids that night that Patrick had to spend the first half of the evening sitting outside on the porch, handing out candy to the seemingly endless procession of kids. Around 8.30 p.m., things quieted down long enough for him to head inside, make some popcorn, and start watching a horror movie. He had to pause every few minutes to cater to another cluster of kids, but as the evening wore on, the visits came fewer and farther between, until he only had to get up every ten minutes or so. He hadn't heard a peep for a good twenty minutes when he noticed the figure making its way up the driveway. Patrick rolled off the couch and checked the time. 10.08. Most kids had gone home already and were busy sorting their candy. However, Patrick knew from experience that the houses tend to give out more treats near the end of the night just so they can get rid of the surplus and close up shop. He figured this kid was trying his luck, hoping for a jackpot. It was too late to turn off the lights and pretend he wasn't home, so Patrick decided he'd give this kid the jackpot he deserved and would go dark as soon as he left. The figure rounded the corner as Patrick headed to the door. By the time he'd armed himself with a handful of candy and opened the door, the figure had reached the foot of his stairs. He realized then that the person just outside of the beams of his porch light was much taller than a child. Apparent, he figured. Maybe his kid had fallen asleep or was hiding under the thick black cloak he was wearing. The man's costume was strange. The fabric looked to be much higher quality than anything you could buy at the store, that's for sure. It was a thick, tattered cloak covered in chains that jangled with every movement. Two black horns protruded from the top of the hood, leaving frilled, fray fabric around the holes they'd torn. Trick or treat, trick or treat, give me something good to eat, it bellowed. The voice was so unnatural 
that it sent a chill down Patrick's spine. He swore at me that it sounded like two people had spoken in unison. The figure took another step up the stairs, which brought him within the radius of the porch light. Patrick could now see he was wearing a goat's mask beneath his hood. The two pearly yellow eyes with slit pupils stared at him. He stared back. The mask was so lifelike. The fur swayed softly in the breeze. Mist seemed to escape its wet nostrils. And the eyes looked real. Almost as though they'd been ripped right off of an animal and glued on while they were still fresh. And suddenly, the goat's eyes blinked. On instinct, Patrick slammed the door shut and locked it. He could hear the patter of something thick as the figure climbed up the wooden steps. Patrick looked out the people hesitantly, hoping he was wrong, praying the man would take his mask off and start laughing at him. Trick or treat, trick or treat, give me something good to eat, it said. Patrick watched as a long forked tongue slithered out of its maw and licked its lips with feverish hunger. He strained his vision enough to notice hooved feet clicking against the floor. Suddenly it rammed into the door with all its might over and over again. Patrick didn't know what else to do but to press himself against the door in the hopes of keeping it shut and turning off the porch lights in a vain attempt at pretending he wasn't home. As soon as the light went off, the creature ceased its offense on the door. The clattering of its footsteps slowly moved toward the living room window. In a panic, Patrick darted into the living room and drew the curtain shut. As he did, he noticed every other house on the street had already turned off their lights. He ran through the first floor and turned off all the lights he could find and ducked behind the couch and hid. Thankfully, the sounds of rattling chains and hooves stopped. Patrick studied me as he told his story, almost as though he was trying to gauge whether or not I believed him. I didn't know what to say. It wasn't like him to spin yarns, but there was no way his story was true. It was probably just some dude in a really good costume trying to freak you out. <laughs> Mission accomplished, I reassured. Patrick shook his head and told me his story wasn't done. He continued. It had been very hard for him to convince himself the whole thing had been in his head. He figured he had a sugar crash and dozed off mid-movie. It was all just a nightmare, nothing more. That is, until a year later, when Halloween rolled back around. He was home alone again, sort of. He snuck his girlfriend in as soon as the parents' car disappeared down the street. He and his girlfriend left a bowl of candy on the porch and shut the curtains so they could canoodle in peace. Throughout the night, between the shrill screams of bimbos getting mutilated on TV, they heard kids running up and down the front steps to grab Halloween candy. Again, as the night progressed, fewer and fewer kids showed up until the trick-or-treaters trickled to a stop. Neither Patrick nor his girlfriend thought to turn off the porch light when 10pm ticked by. Before long, they heard the clunk of something heavy on the porch, followed by a strong knock at the door. Not noticing the time and thinking the bowl of candy needed to be filled, Patrick walked over and opened the door a crack. He saw a yellow eye with a rectangular pupil that darted from side to side until it fixed on him. Trick or treat, trick or treat, give me something good to eat, it said as a hoofed foot 
kicked at the door. Patrick screamed and slammed into the door in an attempt to shut it, but the goat-headed stranger was putting in all its weight. It was a tug of war, or rather a push of war, with the goat trying to open the door and Patrick trying to shut it. Beads of sweat rolled down his face as Patrick yelled at his girlfriend to help. Together, they managed to push it far enough to lock the deadbolt. But even then, the goat outside rammed against the door repeatedly. It looked as though it was going to fall off its hinges. Patrick's girlfriend was screaming. She hadn't seen what was on the other side of the door, but she knew it was trouble. Hit the lights, yelled Patrick as he desperately pressed himself against the floor. She flicked them shut and suddenly everything went quiet. They waited in the dark for a while, neither one daring to look outside the door or pull open the curtains to see if anything was outside. It wasn't until they heard the crackling of a car at the gravel driveway that the two finally relaxed. I stared at Patrick, this time in clear disbelief. It sounded like horseshit to me, or I guess I should say goat shit. Every year, he said, his tone dull and his gaze distant. He comes every year if I have so much as one light on. No matter where I am, my parents' house, the girlfriends, it doesn't matter, he finds me. I let out a chuckle and pat him on the back. I played it off as a joke, fully expecting him to crack a smile and tell me that he was pulling my leg. He didn't. I changed the subject and brought him a drink. Halloween came and went and I forgot all about his story. Which brings us to this Halloween. I was hosting a party at my place. I'd invited Patrick, but he'd refused as usual. Suddenly, a few minutes past 10pm, my phone rang. It was Patrick. I picked up and said hello, but all I could hear were his sobs and the sound of a violent banging on wood. Imagine the sound of your pissed-off landlord knocking on your door demanding payment multiplied by twenty. Patrick's mumbles were nearly indecipherable through his choked cries. The lights won't... he kept saying. I didn't understand what he meant. The lights! he screamed. I heard what I thought was his door splintering open. There was a loud slam and the sound of jangling chains. Patrick screamed a scream so feral that I felt my body seize up. And then I heard it. I heard the most chilling voice I've ever heard in my life. A voice so cold it ran daggers through my veins. A voice that reverberated through my speaker and seemed to have not one, but two sources. I didn't mean there was an echo. I mean it sounded like a man, but with that normal voice came one that was deeper and produced an unholy growl with every syllable. Trick or treat. Give me something good to eat, it uttered. I heard something being dragged. Patrick's screams and the sounds of jingling became distant until I couldn't hear them anymore. I left my party and sped across town to Patrick's condo. All I found was his phone on the welcome mat, his door hanging off its hinges, and the dozen solar lights he'd installed in his flower bed this past summer. 